Support comes from Spectrum Reach, offering a one-stop show destination for marketing solutions to harness the power of multi-screen advertising. Learn more at SpectrumReach.com. Welcome to Spectrum Reach. It's time for Which is the number one chocolate drink? Two pizzas for the price of one. It tastes so wonderful. Yeah. That's a spicy meat. When you look around the American food system, from agriculture to restaurant kitchens, they're dominated by recent immigrants. And so my first question was, how far back does this pattern go? Has it changed, and how has it changed? And what kind of data do we have? Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. I'm Tom Philpot from Mother Jones Magazine. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Today's secret ingredient was going to be ethnic food. But we're recording on the day that President-elect Trump has won. And we're talking with Professor Krishnendu Ray, who is the chair of the New York University Food Studies Department and Nutrition Department. We're definitely going to talk about ethnic food and ethnic cuisine and his fabulous book, The Ethnic Restaurateur, but also explore one of the the central ideas is uh, around how things can change uh, and that, in particular, ideas and perceptions of what good food is can transform. And right now, I think what we need is messages of transformation and change and hope. That's what we're going to be ranging around on today. Krishnadu, I wonder if first you might be able to just sort of introduce the key idea that you've happened upon when doing the study behind the ethnic restaurateur. Yeah. um, Thanks, Raj, for having me. Thanks, Tom. Uh, And my kind of work behind this has been consistently on immigrants and foodways, what changes, what doesn't, how does it matter to immigrants. And when I started working on uh, this book is the third of my uh, books. uh, And uh, the question was, when you look around the American food system today, uh, from agriculture uh, to restaurant kitchens, they're dominated uh, by recent immigrants uh, who happen to be uh, uh, Latin American or Asian. And so my first question was, uh, has this... uh, how far back uh, does this pattern go? Has it changed and how has it changed? And what kind of data do, do, do we have? So kind of uh, in the first part of the book, I look at um, census data. We have, of course, census uh, from uh, right after, the, after independence, but we don't have census on occupations and birthplace until 1850. So we can go back to 1850 and kind of one of the fascinating things for me was to see that, say, if you take occupations like like baker, butcher, restaurant keeper, that was the terminology used in the census, uh, tavern keeper, uh, they are predominantly foreign-born from 1850 onwards. Uh, In 1860, for instance, just before, on the eve of the uh, Civil War, uh, more than 80% of bakers and butchers uh, in New York City uh, are foreign-born. Nationally, more than half are. So, It was very clear to me, and that was kind of a fascinating uh, uh, data to look at, that feeding occupations have been dominated 
by the foreign born in American history. And then the other side of my uh, argument was, so, okay, the foreign born uh, have dominated, and that has, of course, changed, and that was interesting. They were mostly, for instance, Irish and German, uh, and uh, subsequently they became Italian and Eastern Europeans. And only after, say, 1965, and specifically after 1975, do we get more and more uh, 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 Latin Americans and and Asians part of the uh, labor force. Uh, And... uh, so what I was interested in, there was a lot of uh, writing on immigrants in the food system, but in the academic world that I come from, especially uh, sociology of culture, uh, there was very little accounting of that. So what is the consequence of having immigrants dominate the food system in the discussion on good taste, which is kind of your opening uh, comment? Um, now, Krishna, the, the, the transformation in um, in, in U.S., in the makeup of uh, people working in the U.S. food industry, is uh, as a uh, I mean, is, is related to the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, and I, I'm wondering yes. if, if you're able to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I mean, the basic difference with the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, uh, because of the consequence of the civil rights movement, was to make a a, a race an uh, illegitimate category of uh, discrimination. So uh, now we would have national quotas, but we could not have quotas we used to have before that, uh, such as uh, we passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which said, if you're Chinese, you cannot come in. Uh, uh, Or we had, what is the bar? zone from Asia, which, for instance, included, excluded, sorry, uh, uh, Indians uh, like me, uh, and in fact restricted them from rights of citizenship. Uh, The big transformation in American political system, uh, in this case, was the civil rights movement and its consequent changes in immigration laws, the 1965 immigration laws, that allows for Uh, uh, Asians to enter, uh, people like me, Indians, uh, Chinese, who will eventually play an important role in the American uh, food system. So uh, I think that if you look not only at the sort of feeding services like restaurants, but also in Uh farm fields, you would find very similar data and probably similar ethnic makeups with 65 and 75 also being inflection points. And so I wonder, I think this is a really good day to maybe talk through the paradox of how is it that we've relied for so long and so consistently on immigrant labor to feed us as a nation, and yet we've maintained this really strong um, nativist, uh, nativist strain that actually you know, came into sort of reared its ugly head yesterday. How do do we maintain these two things at at the same time? How do we, how is it that we bite the hand that feeds us like this? (laughs) I think it's, it's uh, it's a terrific question. Uh, uh, We have this, seem to have uh, both uh, uh, what I find exciting about American culture uh, is its capacity to absorb immigrants uh, uh, and their food and their food cultures and the range of food cultures. I find that as a very democratic uh, aspect, much more democratic than in many parts of the world, uh, for instance, in parts of Europe, for instance, where immigrants are not considered part of the cultural mainstream. So there's one part of the American cultural DNA that 
that absorbs waves of immigrants uh, and and in some ways appropriates their culture and in fact transforms itself uh, and and in fact tells stories about Americans at least since the 1960s have told stories about themselves as being a country of immigrants but what is also disturbing is the other side of it is that we also go have gone through repeated oscillations uh, against that very form of immigration, often led by uh, people who have been immigrants three or four or few generations before that. And in fact, Trump is a terrific example uh, of uh, it is the Germanic immigration, the Northern uh, European immigration, which turned nativist at a particular point of time and turns nativist at a particular point of time. So you see this oscillation between waves of migration, absorption of this change, and transformation of a political system, of a culture, and then uh, a kind of a recoiling from it, from it. And I think what we are going through right now is that peculiar, uh, dangerous recoil. Uh, and the irony, of course, is that probably the last time uh, we rec uh, Americans recoiled so strongly uh, against an immigrant group, it was, in fact, against Germans uh, from the First World War, uh, between uh, the First World War and the Second World War, and the whole period when, in fact, uh, a lot of American foods were renamed. Uh, German, the, second, the most important second language taught in American schools, uh, was, in fact, often uh, uh, disallowed, often banned to be taught in American schools. And now, of course, somebody with a very Germanic name is now the leading edge of uh, this wave of uh, nativism, which is also, by the way, a very American thing. Uh, a nativist is basically yesterday's immigrant. Um, you know, something in your work that, that I'm wondering if you can, can talk about a little bit is the role of gender that you see in this. It, it seems that no matter... You know, what wave of immigration is coming through? One thing is staying the same, which is that women are not the ones who are taking the main roles in, in, the, in the restaurants and the taverns. And they are cooking at home, but they're not getting paid for it. They're not valued in the kitchens the way the men are. Can you talk a little bit about the role of gender and immigration in the food system yeah. in the U.S.? Yes, and first, of course, I have to acknowledge Rebecca. I didn't say hi to you initially. So oh, that's to okay. Raj and Tom. So, right there is an important gender point to be made. I didn't realize you, uh, 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 who all was involved in the team. So, you are absolutely right. Uh, uh, one of the things uh, which, in fact, has not been picked up almost at all about this book, maybe it comes deep inside the book uh, in the latter part, of, latter part of the chapters, which is this idea that, in fact, most of cooking work and care work uh, in, in, in America as elsewhere in the world, uh, including the Indian world I come from, uh, it's mostly women who do uh, everyday work uh, of caregiving, which includes cooking and cleaning, but are hardly acknowledged when we think of celebrity chefs. Celebrity chefs in the United States, and a classic example of it is the Time magazine cover of Gods of Food, which had David Chang, Rene Redzepi, and Alex Atala. Fine, great guys, uh, but to have uh, an issue on cooking and to have to list, in fact, only male chefs, and the two women that were listed in that group were one was a daughter of a chef, the other was a spouse of a chef. And to do that in uh, in in the twenty first century, without any sense of irony, 
is astounding. And that seems to be a symptomatic of when you are in a, in a field, in the top of a field, uh, uh, it is very difficult to take a critical view of that field, the social dynamics of that field. So people at the top of the field, in this case men, mostly white men and Asian men, that's an important category, it's not just white, it's white men and Asian men, who in fact think they are on the top of the field because they are geniuses. And so <laughs> there's a long history of, of gender and genius, in fact. We see that in painting. We see, as people say, if you get into MoMA, if you get into any fine art uh, institution, you will see more female nudes than female artists. Uh, so it's we, we at one level, we think the world has become equal and flat and everybody has a say in it. That's partly true, but only up to a point. If you take gender and if you take race, my argument in this book is they are constitutive of the, uh, uh, the, the process of professionalization. What I mean by that is this. To create cooking as a profession, uh, a highly remunerative, highly visible uh, profession, as it is at the upper ends, uh, only at the upper ends of the field. You basically have to elbow out people who do everyday cooking, either for free or for very little wages, Okay, which is people of color, which is women. So in some ways, so my larger argument here is excluding women from this discussion about the field of who's a great chef, who's a good chef, is not coincidental. It's not just a consequence of bad intentions of bad men. It is, in fact, the consequence of professionalization of a field. And I have, we can see that in mm -hmm. medicine mm -hmm. uh, in its earlier stages when it was professionalizing at the end of the uh, 19th century. We said, see that in, in law. Uh, we see that in architecture, in every field. Uh, in, we see that in my field, college teaching. In the first instance of it, it is always masculinized and whitened and then it is but that's not thankfully that's not the end of the story there is immense amount of pressure also on these institutions to eventually transform i mean that is the site of democratic hope that like for instance universities now at the lower levels at the assistant professor level and even at the associate, associate professor level are for instance dominantly female not at the full professor level yet as it is in medicine, if you take pediatric care, if you take uh, everyday medicine compared to, say, surgery, especially neurosurgery, radiology, etc. So what is happening in the field of cooking uh, uh, is the pr process of professionalization goes hand in hand with the process by which race, gender, and profession are, in fact, intertwined. And it's almost an unavoidable logic that we have to be particularly attuned to, have to fight it incessantly to be able to eventually, maybe over a generation's time, uh, undermine uh, the, the social address of a profession, which in its first instance is always male and is always white and now Asian with the rise of East Asia as a major economic capitalist power. Let's, let's explore that a little bit because uh, uh -huh. I mean the um, I mean to, to, to be fair I mean the, the news isn't all glum today there were a couple of places where the minimum tipped wage um, was abolished yes. uh, Maine and Flagstaff Arizona are uh, two places where there's a glimmer of hope on the on the ballot uh, as a way of transforming the, the, the this, this scandal of minimum tipped wage um, and uh, to, to, to transform um, particularly the, the, the lives of uh, predominantly women who are involved in those uh, in, uh, 
at those wage levels. Um, but to, for, for Asians to become uh, eligible to, uh, to, to, be, um, to be considered in, in this sort of hierarchy um, and to be considered at the top of the hierarchy, things needed to change. Um, and you know, originally, Asians were considered just as dirty and unhygienic as, um, uh, as other restaurant uh, cuisines and cultures. Uh, what, what allowed Asia to become clean? Yes, um, I, simple metrics in terms of uh, I think uh, economic power and national power. Where I mean, one of the one of the sad uh, lessons for me from writing this book when uh, when I finished writing and it came out is the realization is that cultural uh, prestige uh, often follows a capital. And in this particular case, it was the rise of East Asia, specifically the rise of Japan. And the way people used to talk about Japan right after the Second World War, in fact, we forget today. In fact, Japan used to be associated with cheap, low-quality goods, uh, which is always uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, affiliated with one of the early stages of industrialization. In the same ways, I would say many Americans think about Chinese goods uh, today. And that's going to change, give it 10, 15, 20 years, as it changed in the case of the Japanese. But the rise of Japan as a major economic power and a major national power uh, allowed a different kind of an attitude towards Japanese culture. And that went hand in hand with the end of the in-migration of poor Japanese into the United States. And in the book, I argue these two things have to happen. The rise of an economic power, which in fact, is one of the causes why eventually poor out-migration is going to stop uh, from that. In fact, we can see that. We will probably see that in the case of China over the next 20 years if China continues to grow. And when an, uh, a national cultural economic zone climbs up in a global economic hierarchy, we tend to look at that culture as high value, high prestige. And our whole attitude towards Japanese culture has been transforming over the 20th century. We saw early parts of it in Impressionism, for instance. Impressionists often were explicitly mimicking uh, Japanese art and especially watercolor on silk. That's why you have that quality of light and lightness in Impressionist painting. So that was the early edge, the avant-garde of partly mimicking, partly appropriating uh, a Japanese culture into Western high culture uh, idioms. Uh, but that took the whole 20th century, the rise of Japan as a Meiji economic power since about 1868, the Meiji Restoration, end of the, 20th, uh, end of the 19th century, the defeat by Japan of Russia in 1904, and of course the rise of Japan as a major economic power. And then it went through this intermediate phase of defeat in the Second World War, uh, but then reemergence after, after the peace as a major economic power. And by the 1970s, Paul Bacuse, who is sometimes considered the father of Nouvelle French cuisine, uh, his his customers used to often complain that he used, he used to repeatedly uh, uh, flee to Japan and be inspired by it. And if you look at a plate presentation today in haute cuisine restaurants, they are so inspired by the shape and the dimensions of Japanese food and plating. Uh, for give give you an example, various shapes of plates, and that the fact that the plates are not full but can be absolutely 
minimalist, which is off, which has become de rigueur for uh, haute cuisine plates today in the Western world, is a completely Japanese inspiration. So there's a there's a long cultural pathway of appropriation, but I think it is linked to the rise of economic power, emergence of a national cultural space, and the decline of poor migrants from that region. That kind of these three things go together to create this hierarchy of prestige. And we are right in the middle of that for Korea, South Korea. We may be seeing the early, uh, uh, the, the advanced guard towards Chinese food. We are beginning to, in, in places like New York City, we have about, say, 20 expensive Chinese restaurants now, which is very unusual. Uh, and people playing with uh, idioms of old Western cuisine and Chinese ingredients and Chinese techniques. So, uh, so the so the link is this long history between regions, which is partly linked to changing nature of Orientalism in this specific case, and and reorienting of the world economy. Since the center of gravity of the world economy has moved to the Pacific. East Asian cultures have had much greater visibility and viability in the Western world. The old-fashioned Orientalism is dying. In the book, you've got some fascinating data. Um, you've got you give us a snapshot of more or less recent figures from Zagat, the famous restaurant guide. Yes. And you rate. Um, what you do is you take the average prices from Zagat for various different cuisines, Japanese, French, American, um, a bunch of cuisines, and you, you rank them by how much, what, what kind of price tag they command in New York City um, right now. And then you also have a chart that does this over 30 years uh, yes. that we'll get on the website when we, um, Perfect. When, we, yep. when we do this. And I wonder if you can talk us through what you found um, in terms of, you know, you were just talking about it, but I want to hear more about specifically what it is that you found when you made this data. Yeah, and it, it's and, and this argument uh, is data driven, and uh, uh, so one of the things I was after I was after two things. Once I looked at, so l let me step back and say I was interested in what I saw as ethnic succession in the labor force and also ethnic succession in terms of tastes, uh, what Americans prefer in terms of when is Mexican food coming into play uh, and when did Italian food come into play, Jewish food, etc. So w one thing I tried to measure was popularity. And the other thing I tried to measure was prestige or this kind of a respect for a so-called respect for a culture. And I used price as a surrogate for prestige. And there are some... Uh, 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 strengths to that and some limitations to that, that when you use price as a surrogate for prestige, not everything prestigious is always expensive, but that was the only uh, data I could, uh, uh, I could have. And in this particular case, uh, the data I had was uh, from Zagatz. Zagatz comes out, remember, uh, since 1979. 
but uh, most people, in fact, threw away their zagats, uh, and zagats were un- uh, uninterested in sharing their data with me. So the first data set I had to go to was a publicly available uh, zagats data set uh, was in the Library of Congress, 1986. Wow. So my data set is from 1986 to 2016. As more and more zagats became publicly available, I went on eBay, bought some old zagats. Of course, zagats were considered ephemera, so most librarians, in fact, threw it away because who is going to read Zagat's from three years ago? Because you are always wanting the next best thing, the next important thing. So uh, it is rare to have, and now librarians are beginning to gather, uh, collect them. And looking at that data, so I have this 30-year data sent then from 1986 to 2016, and I looked at basically price. Price uh, for meal for one with a glass of wine, uh, and tips. Uh, that is one of the metrics uh, that Zagat uh, uses. And the pattern is you have a co- uh, constant pattern where, for instance, predictably, French restaurants are the most high-priced restaurant in the New York market. And it changes a little in the Chicago market. It is, in fact, plays the same role in the San Francisco market. So I looked at a couple of cities, Los Angeles, etc. And so the French is quite high, but we see that since about, in fact, in the in in the last two decades, the French have been wobbling at the top, and they have been often beaten by the Japanese. For instance, in New York City, the most expensive restaurants like Masa are Japanese. And so on average, Jap- uh, Japanese restaurants uh, registered in Zagat's are more expensive than French restaurants, which was quite an interesting insight. I had some feeling for it, but I, I wanted to find data for it. And then after that, you have what uh, are self-described as American restaurants, usually new American. This classification is done uh, by themselves, by the restaurateurs themselves, which also shows an increasing rise in prestige of uh, food, high-end food that you can charge a high price and call it American. You couldn't do that 50 years ago. That has become commonplace now. And sometimes you mark it in the 1970s and especially in the early 80s, you had to call it New American. Now, just the category American has become a much more prestigious category. Then on the other side, uh, uh, your uh, audience would kind of maybe remember some of it. Continental cuisine has this... had catastrophic decline in terms of uh, uh, prestige, in terms of price, and of course, in terms of popularity. There are, in fact, very few restaurants that self-describe themselves as as continental without kind of tongue-in-cheek about it. On the other hand, Italian food uh, has been climbing, and Italian food is slightly complicated data uh, because there are about 100,000 Italian restaurants in the United States, out of which 70,000 are pizzerias. Uh, of course, pizzerias are relatively cheaper. If you exclude the pizzerias and include only the 30,000 Italian restaurants, you'll see the prices going up with increasing prestige over the last two generations in terms of Italian restaurants. Then, predictably, Spanish restaurants and uh, amazingly and intriguingly, Greek and Korean restaurants have been climbing basically with some oscillations climbing over the last, their price of an average meal for one person with a glass of wine, if available, and tips has been climbing. This has been the, these have been the upwardly mobile categories, Vietnamese, uh, Mexican, 
Indian have been kind of hovering at the lower end of that uh, pyramid. Vietnamese have been climbing a little, but the data gets clouded because you also have Vietnamese uh, 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 sandwich places that bring down the average price. Uh, then at the bottom end of it, you have uh, Chinese, Southern, Thai, Seoul. Uh, anything... Any restaurant uh, that identif- self-identifies itself as Seoul or uh, Tex-Mex or uh, Chinese uh, seems to uh, have difficulty fetching a price um, uh, anywhere near, uh, say, an Indian restaurant or a, or a Vietnamese restaurant and especially a Greek or a Spanish restaurant and clearly, clearly very far from a Japanese, a French, or a new American restaurant. Well, you know what? So that shows, yep, sorry. I was just going to say it's fascinating that Southern uh, is way down at the bottom of the list because yeah. I think that you, when you do this again in 10, in 10 years, you'll see a climb because the process of professionalization has happened to Southern cuisine, um, you know, in South Carolina and that famous restaurant Husk in, in Charleston has sort of lifted the Southern genre now to where a, a, a restaurant calling itself Southern can probably command quite a high price in New York, even while a sort of traditional soul food kitchen in Bed-Stuy or Harlem is still down there at the bottom. And I think you're going to start seeing you're absolutely more right. of those and in fact, in fact, that Southern category is slightly problematic in my data because, in fact, there are very few Southern restaurants, self-proclaimed Southern restaurants in New York City. It's a thin data. And, uh, and you're absolutely – I just ate uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in kind of the new Southern restaurants like uh, Edward Lee's Place, 610 Magnolia in Louisville, for instance. Right. And it was expensive. It was the most expensive restaurant <laughs> we'll have had in a while. Uh, and so – and that's the new Asian, uh, the new Southern, the new Southerner. And, and I, I think in my data it doesn't show up very well is – uh, Southern is going through a reclassification and segregate separation between Seoul and Southern. Mm. You know, the Southern one, I think, is going to climb. Seoul, I'm not so sure that you can, how much you can charge, with some exceptions of one, two, maybe five restaurants. Remember, we're talking about, what, 24,000 restaurants in New York City. Yeah. Okay? Well, it's hard and to get so more racialized the, in that. Mm. Exactly. I think, I think that's what the Southern... Uh, the Southern category is a complex category because that category includes a kind of a whiteness category and a blackness category. And the two, and there's a kind of a tug of war going on there, including the, including the discussion within Southern food and Southern cuisine. But uh, you're absolutely right. That's a very interesting category to watch and also do it in other cities. And I think New York City is a bad city to study Southern food. It is really underrepresented in, a, in, a, in the same way as until I would say almost last 10 years uh, for interesting good Mexican food, New York City was a very weak city. Chicago was far ahead. Of course, LA was far ahead of, of New York City. So criticism Absolutely uh, well taken, and you're absolutely right. Oh, not, right. not a criticism at all. No, no, no. It's, it's a right observation. It's a right observation that the Southern category is worth watching. And uh, I don't even know whether New York City is a good place to watch it over the next even 10 years. Hmm. I have a question. I'm wondering about this 
the relationship that you see and some of the maybe the parallels or when where you see things kind of juxtapose in the lived shopping experience at the grocery stores your research is showing the specific mm. dynamic is it translating at the grocery stores in the way that people are interacting with buying quote-unquote ethnic food hmm. i don't a uh, good question and i i would say I would take it away, take it in two directions. Uh, one is one legitimate criticism that could be made about this book is this looks at ethnic food uh, from outside in. In some ways, I look at I, I interview uh, restaurateurs, so that's an inside out view. But mostly, I'm looking at say in in New York City, I'm looking at uh, immigrant restaurateurs in Manhattan and the roles they play. If I looked at immigrant restaurateurs in Queens, okay, they play a slightly different role in terms of depending on where they are, they're Jackson Heights, whether they are primarily catering to tourists, primarily catering to people from Manhattan going for a taste of authenticity, or in fact, Indian sweet shop selling it to basically Indian customers the same way Indian customers in Indian cities use sweet shops for, you know, pick up samosas, pick up some pakoras, pick up some sweets. So that is a study that is still uh, waiting to be done. And that would be kind of fun to do. And uh, and I'm hoping other people would do it. And there's some amount of <laughs> journalistic journalistic writing about it. And a, and a second uh, related point is what's happening in... Um, Grocery stores. Uh, in fact, in grocery stores, ethnic category is 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 the the the, uh, the category of ethnic. For instance, if you look, if you just walk around, you will see it is still used often in large grocery stores to mark all cultural difference. So, for instance, if you go in hair products section, so basically hair products from black people are called ethnic. Okay, in ethnic is the last place and the only place. Ethnic is used in that particular category of black people, of Latinos, of Asians, all other different people. It's kind of a quite a retrograde category, as I argue in the book. And in fact, it is dying at the upper ends of the uh, um, of the field of journalism. For instance, New York Times has in New York City has effectively stopped using ethnic uh, as a term over the last uh, five years. But a related thing that's interesting thing, thing that is happening is a lot of interesting non-Anglo-centered food is emerging in the uh, in the grocery store and not necessarily in the ethnic grocery store, Whole Foods. Whole Foods has a whole section of, for instance, Indian sauces. In fact, somebody was talking to me about it yesterday, says, have you tried all those great Indian sauces in Whole Foods? I said, whoa, I, have, I didn't know that they're selling these Indian sauces. And they, I can see uh, experientially, um, uh, anecdotally, that there's an increased repertoire of kind of a cultural difference and cultural curiosity uh, uh, that is uh, playing out in grocery stores uh, and there's an mar increasing market for it. There's some work, I have data, I'm not in my, uh, on my fingertips right now, that there is an increasing, of course, everybody knows the story, I think what, sriracha beat uh, uh, ketchup as uh, the most important condiment, it seems, uh, in some markets. Yeah. So there are some anecdotal evidence, some work on it, uh, uh, but I haven't done that work uh, and I am not on top of that material. 
Well, Krishnanda, maybe I can ask about the, uh, and, I, I'm, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not sure of the resolution of your data to be able to answer this question, but um, since uh, we're going to be living through Islamophobia now, um, uh, yes. more of it, uh, th- I, I wonder if there's a difference that you saw in the, the prices of Indian versus, say, Pakistani or Bangladeshi mm. restaurants, mm. Um, and whether that's, you know, w- whether there's enough data in Manhattan or whether one has to go to Queens to be able to, to, to see those kinds of variations in, uh, in, in what people are able to charge. Uh, because when you're thinking about samosas or, or pakoras or whatever, uh, th- these are North Indian foods that can be made pretty well across uh, either of the borders uh, at the top of India. And I wonder whether the branding of Indian helps, um, whereas the branding the branding of something being Pakistani or Bangladeshi uh, is, is something that f- uh, people avoid, uh, restaurateurs would, would, would choose to avoid uh, in order to uh, escape Islamophobia. Excellent point. And in fact, it comes up repeatedly in my interviews uh, to give you, a, give you a sense about it. There are about 350 Indian restaurants in New York, uh, out of which uh, most of them are in fact run by Pakistanis or, Bangladesh, or, or Bangladeshis, owned and run by Pakistanis mm-hmm. and Bangladeshis. And almost all the cheap curry houses where we would expect and demand a $9.99, $9.99 buffet of all you can eat are all run by Pakistani and Bangladeshis and all claim an Indian name or a kind of a Indophile name or a generic name like Mughal Raj, uh, uh, Curry in a Hurry, or et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They're all Bangladeshi run. And my conversation in my book, I talk about Muhammad Rasul. He's from Pakistan. He's from Lahore. And he, he, he runs this uh, restaurant. And he, they, he, he labors and belabors the point that he could not call his restaurant Pakistani because he's afraid of the contamination effect about it. So people would be afraid of it. So the, Indian, the term Indian is an easier cover under which to A, to run an enterprise and not provoke hostility. Uh, and B, it is, it is in fact what allows uh, uh, little better margins in your business if you can pull it off. At the other end of it, there are only about, by some category, I would say a dozen expensive Indian restaurants in, in, in New York City. And almost all the expensive Indian restaurants are run by Indians from India or Indian uh, upper-class uh, immigrants, uh, say, uh, Tamarind, uh, Pauwala. And so there's a clear uh, hierarchy there between Pakistani, Bangladeshi-run places at the bottom of within the Indian category and Indian-run places at the higher end of the category. There are also Indian-run cheap places, often run by Punjabi, Gujarati, Gujaratis. And, but uh, you can see the clear difference. The bottom of the marketplace for Indian food is basically serviced by Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, while the upper end, in fact, is owned most often by expatriate Indians with new capital. These are new, different, very different circuits. At the upper end, it costs you two, three million, four million dollars uh, to get a midtown place like, say, uh, Indian Accent. Uh, and it is playing in a very different domain from, say, Curry in a Hurry in, in, say, Jackson Heights or in Murray Hill. And there it costs you, it is usually a partnership 
maybe five people with $10,000, $20,000 each, uh, raising about $100,000, then raising some more money uh, to run, run a place at, at the bottom end of the marketplace. So uh, excellent point. You see that uh, distribution both in the demographics and the price they can fetch. Along those same lines, um, one thing that I think about when I look at, at your data and your, your chart is the degree to which this kind of prestige is ripe for the picking yes. uh, for, by anyone. And so, for example, if you are someone with $4 million to, to start a restaurant in Manhattan and maybe a fancy chef degree, you could sort of go through your chart and pick one of those cuisines and start a restaurant after it. Um, and, you know, we say that all the time. Um, some of the most prestigious Asian restaurants in Austin are run by white chef owners, non-Asian chef owners. And I think that's true everywhere. And I'm wondering if in your data you you track that at all. Like, uh, for example, you know, the Rick Bayless phenomenon of, of yeah. taking Mexican and, and sort of um, taking ownership of it in some ways. And I'm not, I really don't want to criticize him because I think he does a lot of great work. But that sort of thing, what impact does that have on taking an ethnic cuisine up your chart, sort of on an upward slope on your chart? Excellent point. And you see that with Japanese, you see that with Korean, you see that, in fact, happening with Chinese now. Um, um, and uh, Vietnamese, uh, you, you see a couple of instances, sure. uh, uh, the Vietnamese instance. Uh, so I think uh, a couple of things to note about that is is these are, of course, when we say white people, what we are what, what implying is not the whiteness itself, but that whiteness carries certain uh, uh, capital uh, is part of a certain capital network and cultural capital networks. Uh, and uh, and so uh, we, when you see that kind of an interest, especially in these intermediate groups, uh, and I would say some Chinese, some Vietnamese, and some Indian, we are just beginning to see that where they are acquiring uh, autonomous prestige in the marketplace of culture. And as that happens, uh, people with more capital uh, and more cultural capital are going to harvest that. And we, you are beginning to see that, of course, in very dramatically in Mexican cuisine, which is also you see uh, 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 upscale Mexican restaurants, even when run by Mexicans, are often tall, light-skinned Mexicans, not the Mexicans who have strong indigenous traits and look like uh, uh, indigenous peoples. This is partly uh, how I would say culture and capital are entangled. And in this case embodied. So whiteness or blackness or indigeneity or, uh, or uh, 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 a Latina body is partly implicated as to what you can mobilize. You can mobilize what kind of capital you can mobilize and what kind of a cultural capital you can mobilize. And if you can bring these together and then basically take a product and so my my I have no disagreement in that sense with Drake Bayless. I don't think, for instance, we should be building uh, boundaries around cuisines and say, okay, Mexican cuisine can only be cooked by Mexican and white folks can't. I think that's a disastrous yeah. consequences of ghettoization uh, of culture. But on the other side, we have to yet also have to understand that uh, that uh, indigenous Mexican chef will have a very difficult time raising capital 
uh, and uh, and even thinking about the design, the menu that will sell to a Western cosmopolitan metropolitan audience in some ways. So we have to be aware of the limitations that bodies bring because of their social histories for no other reason but because of the limitations of social history and which is also what makes the issue sensitive. On one side, we do not want to ghettoize each culture, so people of each culture cooking their own food and no one else gets to cook it, which is absurd and anyway, which can be policed and which makes you to shrill anyway, trying to uh, 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 build boundaries like that and unproductive. Uh, but on the other side, one has to be aware of the fact that only some people with some kinds of bodies can transgress some barriers, which are usually barriers of capital and cultural capital. And that is very clearly associated with whiteness and masculinity and Asianness and masculinity in the field of, I would say, uh, uh, culinary capital, if we're going to invent a, a, a phrase. In terms of culinary capital, those are kinds of bodies, those are kinds of attitudes, and those are kinds of cultural lessons that play very well at the upper end of the market. And it's very difficult for somebody with a different body, which is, say, an indigenous uh, female body cooking any of this food to break through that barrier. There will, of course, be exceptions, but the general pattern is it is so, so in some ways, a profession and a field of knowledge, an aesthetic field, is partly shaped by the history, the social history of bodies uh, uh, traveling through space and time. And you see that in the domain of food. And of course, food is one of the most embodied of things in the world. You are what you eat, and you become what you eat. But it is, of course, not just uh, nutrition we are talking about. We are also talking about concepts and attitudes towards this, these things, uh, artifacts we consume, we incorporate into our bodies, which have, I would say, one way of saying that is to say uh, uh, food is a very condensed social fact uh, with its own social history. It's a thing with its own social history. And my book is one of the attempts to kind of try to deal with it and unpack it and reveal the story over time and place. Um, I want to leave a little bit of time to talk about the election because I, I want to know if you saw this coming at all and what or what you think maybe we should have looked at um, and th what we missed, maybe. Um, but I, I do. Have, I have a quick question about um, the role. Do you see any distinctions um, in the reception of these different foods in the United States, um, and the status of the immigrant as either an immigrant or a refugee? Do you see any um, relationship? Between I have not studied that well enough to be able to say if that makes a difference, you know. Uh, and uh, say, I mean, it also depends on if you're a Cuban refugee, the conditions of it, if you're a Vietnamese refugee, and now, of course, if you're a Syrian refugee. Part of it has to do with time. 
part of it has to do, I think, do with class structure where you're emerging out of. So if you're part of the Cuban elite that has migrated at one point of time because of the Cuban revolution, uh, you are also networked very differently into the American political system. They are much better networked into the Republican Party uh, than into the uh, into the Democratic Party. So partly it is that uh, uh, political um, uh, affiliation and access uh, to power, but access to capital mm, uh, depends on when you came, where you are coming from, and what kind of class background you are coming from, I think, crucially determines our attitude towards some of that culture, sometimes which is flattened from outside because simple racism or simple Orientalism, where we can't make this distinction between an elite Vietnamese, uh, uh, say, dish and, say, a poor man's Vietnamese dish. So there are these complexities of that story. But I think origins, class origins, are crucial to that story of refugees and cultural valuation of their um, artifacts. Yeah. And about the election, mm. you wanted to talk about <laughs> We have a few minutes left. Yeah, so no, I, I was, in fact, I was just, uh, I, I, I had on my Facebook page, I had said on July 25th during the Philadelphia Convention, the Democratic Convention, I said, where is the symbolic representation of the white working class male at that convention? I mean, I couldn't have predicted it, but I was nervous about it. And I went and looked back and I said, wow, this was July 25th. I saw all the beautiful work in Philadelphia that happened that was visible all the great contribution of African Americans, of of uh, uh, of gay Americans, of women, uh, white women, that were celebrated. That was fantastic. So my critique was not from a conservative side, but my critique was saying, but where is the white male working class culture? We, of course, saw that with Bernie Sanders' campaign. I think it could have been better incorporated both at the policy level and at the symbolic level. Now, of course, looking back, that looks like, uh, wow, uh, that's, that's, that's a lesson that you cannot, you cannot win this election unless you bring in white working class folks. And Democrats have to have a strategy. You cannot drive it by liberal, bi-coastal, white, college-educated elites. That's, for me, today's lesson. And I wish I was wrong, and I don't think I predicted it. I thought, I thought Hillary would win in spite of that because all the polls were showing that, which, by the way, is another lesson, mm -hmm. how all the polls were wrong. When you over-quantify and when things that are subjective or intersubjective begin to appear objective, and everybody keeps repeating it. Almost every poll was predicting it, other, thing, other than, I think, the Rasmussen poll, which always had um, uh, Trump up by a couple of points. That was bothering me, uh, but I didn't have the courage of conviction at that point of time hmm. to make much noise about it. Well, uh, and... Uh, but you can see the representation of the white working class on Trump's plate. Um, you know, when, he, when he's on the plane and he's eating KFC with you know, gold-plated <laughs> knives and forks. Um, he's, I mean, th th there is this story. And, and, and I, I, I wonder if, you know, if, if your research can speak to that uh, about yeah. you know, the, the fact that he is eating 
uh, processed food, and he's eating it for reasons of hygiene. I mean, he's, he's talking about, <laughs> yes. I mean, his quote is, I'm a very yes. clean person. I like cleanliness. I think you're better off going yeah. there than someplace you have no idea where the food is coming from. I mean, yeah. th- th- that kind of racially inflected mass-produced food yep. um, is, is something that, you know, you, was, was uh, precisely that kind of symbol. I, I'm not sure what Hillary was eating, but I don't think it was KFC. <laughs> No, I think, and, and again, it's a, you raise a beautiful question about the relationship between symbol and substance, right? And in a sense, what I'm saying is we should be paying attention to symbols, but of course, we should also be paying attention to substance. And he symbolized that kind of, uh, uh, in some, uh, comfortable whiteness that could, in the nature of the whiteness and that masculinity, could partake of a popular idiom that can pass as kind of an affinity for the working class. And he turned out to be, I thought he was a buffoon, but he turned out to be a genius being able to connect. I, I, I don't think he even he realized it, but that is the nature of the political terrain today. And this is not just an American thing. Uh, I also link it to Brexit. I link mm. it to the victory of the Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP in India, mm. uh, which is always the other side. These these a- aspects of democracies where we started, you know, between the democratic aspect, the opening aspect of it, and then the paranoia, paranoia which is this, the fear, what Arjun Appadurai has called the fear of small numbers mm. that haunts all democracies. We make great anxieties about poor immigrant minorities that are, in fact, have lot less capital, lot less power, but they fill our nightmares sometimes in democracies. I think that's one of the beasts that democracies produce. One thing I've been thinking about is, and this kind of gets back to the waves of immigration and the waves of backlash you were talking about earlier, is that the rise of Trump and Trumpism coincides with a period when immigration from Mexico is actually down. Um, I believe we have been at uh, zero net immigration for a couple of years. And the specter of the Syrian refugee is mainly a specter. We we don't let in very many Syrian refugees. And that's the funny thing about democracies, right? You don't need substance to mobilize people sometimes. And that's kind of terrifying. It is the fear of small numbers, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, from your research, is an event like this election, is this a sign of peak Trumpism? And now that we've made this sort of expression that we hate immigrants and we want to send them back and build walls, um, is, this, is, this, is it peaking now or are we, are we at the start of a wave, um, do you think? Yeah. Uh, I th- I'm hoping it's peaking. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping because winning is always much easier than governing. And uh, and governance is much more complicated. And I was hopeful about that, for instance, in the Indian context with the rise of the Hindu nationalists. Uh, but there's a terrifying lesson there. They have been very successful in polarizing mm. the populations and, in fact, going after poor Muslims in India mm. who happen to eat or are rumored to eat. In fact, they don't happen to. They are rumored to eat beef. Yeah. Uh, so they are lynched. Uh, and uh, that is a terrifying scenario for me. And one of my friends was texting me today. He says, I worry about non-white people in non-blue states. Uh, mm-hmm. And says, I don't worry so much about you in New York City, maybe. Uh, and that there's a physical worry. There's mm. a, there is an anxiety. I can feel in my bones there's an anxiety 
you uh, want i i can feel uh, in young women's uh, kind of it's it's mm. their bodies that they have to now with the cornering almost probably of the supreme court and probably right. anti choice decisions institutionalization this is the peak but i'll wait to see what are the institutional inroads this peak is going to make in the structure of the american state and depending on that uh, and the mobilization against it. And so it's now we have to be ready to dust up and ready to fight our fights for uh, minimum wage, uh, for better health care once again. And maybe it will release us, and that's my hope, it will release us from having to carry the burden of a Clinton behind our backs again. So it will free <laughs> us from real mobilization. I mean, that's really, I'm hoping and I'm thinking it's going to take us a little time. Um, you know, I hear you on the the white working class male missing. But how do you explain mm. white women voting 50% for Trump? I have I have <laughs> no idea how that happens. Um, uh, I, I guess, I mean, in, in some ways uh, I should because it's a lesson that whiteness counts for more. That surprises me. I thought, I would have thought that at least gender would have counted more here. Um, and it's for mobilization, at least on the right, uh, it is uh, backs to the wall and there's an anxiety about plurality. It's not even people misrepresented at saying, oh, minorities are going to be majority. No, everybody is going to be a minority and everybody has been quite used to it. Nothing, nothing uh, anxiety uh, provoking about it. But those who have not been, and they have been mobilized now around it, and that is an important anxiety, and, and there's no easy way out of it that uh, uh, I would say on one side, uh, generationally. But what I'm optimistic is how devastating this feels to a lot of young people. And there's hope in there uh, that just whiteness is not going to keep them uh, in one corner uh, against uh, progressive social movements uh, just because uh, the farm worker, just because the restaurant worker is uh, uh, El Salvadoran or Guatemalan or Mexican or Fujianese, uh, that we will in fact transcend race and uh, be willing to fight for people who don't look like us. Um, and. I'm hopeful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thanks, so Thanks much for having me here. Thank you so much. Krishnandu Ray is the chair of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University and author of The Ethnic Restaurateur. We spoke to him from New York City on the day after the 2016 U.S. presidential election about his book, The Current Political Landscape, and where change and transformation is possible through food. On our next episode of The Secret Ingredient, Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and I will talk more about the election results and what they mean for the restaurant industry with Saru Jayaraman, the co-founder and co-director of the Restaurant Opportunity Center United and the director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. You can subscribe to The Secret Ingredient on iTunes or SoundCloud and find more information about the show and get our entire archive at thesecretingredient.org. Special thanks to our engineer, David Alvarez, and our intern, Shelby Hicks. From KUT in Austin, Texas, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. 
Thanks for listening. As our community grapples with developing public health concerns, the team of reporters at KUT are gathering the facts and bringing you the answers to your most pressing questions. Keep this coverage strong with your gift of support today at KUT.org. And thank you.